0: Daniel chapter 12, it's good to be sharing God's word with you again, <clears throat> here this morning. Thank you once again to Brother Alan, who shared that uh, wonderful message last week as well, so thanks for, for doing that, it's such short notice too, God bless you. Okay, Daniel chapter 12, we'll just read the first three verses, as Wilbur's already read the entire chapter for us, and it says there, Daniel 12, verse 1, and at that time shall Michael stand up. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time and at that time thy people shall be delivered every one that shall be found written in the book and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We just thank you that you've preserved it perfectly for us and that we can trust every word within it. We thank you that it leads us to faith, that it strengthens our faith, that it is the thing that nourishes our soul. And we pray this morning that we would continue to be nourished through this word. I pray that you would use me to that effect, that I might share this truth with my brethren here, Lord, that you would bless us with your Spirit, who is our teacher, and Lord, that we might understand these things, and not just understand them, but to live them. So we ask for your blessing upon us now. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we've come to the final sermon of Daniel, the book of Daniel, and uh, thank you for um, staying with us all this time. This is our 25th sermon on this particular topic. And I pray it's been a blessing to you, as it has been a blessing to me. With all, I get the added benefit of having to do all the study before, so I get a whole lot of information. It just it blesses me while I actually do that. So I pray that um, it's been a blessing to you over this, essentially a six-month period we've been looking at this. And what a book it is, and what a book it's been. I mean, consider all that it has contained and all it contains and what we've heard over these past six months. I mean, it contains an enormous amount of history. The history of the world, I mean, with all the major um, civilizations and empires the world has seen, it foretold right from the beginning. We've seen the the God's people, the Jews specifically, as they were taken captive in the beginning of that captivity in Babylon. And we've seen it through the lives of these faithful ones uh, like Daniel, who had to endure living under these oppressive um, governments but all the while staying faithful, we've seen miracles occur where God has rescued them from the mouths of lions, from uh, excuse me, from from fiery furnaces, and from many other uh, things that could have taken them. God has shown His hand in the middle of all those things. We've seen prophecy. This book is filled with prophecy. It was written hundreds of years before most of the thing, people that we understand. You know, people like Alexander the Great it foretold hundreds of years before his birth and what he would do and how his empire would come about and, and what would happen to it. And we've seen it now actually prophesy all the way to the end of the actual world when this time that we speak about, and we often refer to it as the, tribu- the great tribulation, the last seven years, and the great last three and a half years, where God then recommences His program with His people, where His people, years He's been able to go into heaven and come back from heaven, and and by the looks of it, his angels as well, and now all of a sudden they're locked into the earth. They've got nowhere else to go, and you know what the problem is? They know their judgment's coming because they've been confined to one place and that's where they're going to be judged. And look at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast out unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. Okay, without getting into all the details, the devil will be like almost like a caged animal. He knows that his time's gonna be short, and what's he gonna try and do? Well he's gonna try, he's angry, he's upset. And so he knows that there are still promises that God has made to his people that haven't been fully fulfilled yet. So what do you do when you're locked up like that? You're gonna try and knock them all off. Because if he can destroy all of God's people, he can nullify the promises of God to his people. And so he goes on this rampage of destruction against what's called the woman here. And the reason that this, uh, this person is called the woman is because she gave birth to a son. And this son, the man-child is called here, is Jesus Christ. You see... God prepared his people and called his people so that they would not only be the vehicle through which we received the word of God, they would be the vehicle through which his son would be born into the world. So the devil hates them. The devil hates them because the devil wants them destroyed and he has tried many times to do it, but he still hasn't done it yet. But he's trying to, in these last few days, in these last few moments of his, let's say, semi-freedom, he's going to try and bring down as many as he can during that time. You know what's interesting about the fact that angels have names and they've got different jobs to do? It means they have personalities. They're each individual. He's, so when God made us. He made us individuals. And we don't have any problem with that because I know who I am. You know who you are. Each of us have names. Each of us have, you know, bodies. We can do things. We can we have a brain to think with and we can make choices in our lives. And the experiences we go through and the things that we do make us individuals. Because there's no two people alike. But have you ever thought about, about that about angels? That angels each have a name. They're not numbers. You know, God doesn't name them five hundred and fifty-six and five hundred and ninety-five and you know two thousand. They each of them have a name, and that's the way God is. By the looks of it, the way God loves has made His creation is for them to be individuals. You see, God, God is such such a, a being that He's actually He has His own personality, and He wants each one of His creations to have their own personality god is so important about god loves that so much even names the stars there are plenty of those too so god loves names names are very important to god and the beautiful thing about god is that we have a god who we know by name who has revealed his personality to us and he knows our name and that's the beautiful thing about god that he knows your name he knew your name before you were even born and he took an interest in you before you were born, and he loves you, and he cares for you, and he knows that you're an individual. and That's the way he treats us, as individuals. Let's continue. So Michael, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, so Michael's going to stand up. He's going to rescue God's people from these last three and a half years of the devil's um, uh, persecution and tribulation. There's going to be a time of trouble such as never has been in the world ever before. And God's going to rescue all those who put their faith in Christ. And then it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So God's going to rescue his people. And it says there's going to be a resurrection. And it says that some are going to be resurrected to eternal life and some are going to be resurrected to eternal damnation. And it says there's going to be those who are wise who are going to shine as the firmament and those who turn people to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And all those who are found in the book of life are going to be the ones who shine forever and ever. Look at Revelation 14 with me for a moment. Revelation 14, verse 14. At this time, there's going to be a resurrection of the people of God at the end of the tribulation period. God's going to resurrect his people. God's going to give them new bodies. Just as we've received new bodies, God is going to then resurrect his own people at this time too. Revelation 14, 14. Now we're we're looking at this particular passage and it's actually coming towards the end of the book of Revelation. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one that sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust his sickle in on, sorry, on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then we find, if you read further, we find there's another angel that's sort of called upon, and he reaps... The children of the wrath of God's condemnation and damnation. So there's like a dual aspect happening here. There's like a, there's a taking away or a ca- capturing of the people that are faithful in this particular passage, and then the very next few verses there's then the judgment. And this is what we see in the rapture as well. We see God rescues His people first, and then there's judgment. And it's what we find with the people of God just before the final. Judgments of God, which are called the the vials, okay? And then the return of Christ, which is then the final judgment of God upon the earth. God's people, the Jews specifically, are going to be resurrected at this time and given new bodies, just as we've been given new bodies. Look at Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 11 with me. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 11 to 14. Because God makes a promise to his people. He knows they're going to be scattered. He knows they're going to be persecuted. And they're going to wonder whether they're going to survive this whole thing. And he makes them a promise. In Ezekiel 37 verse 11. It says there, then he said unto me, son of man, so he, he tells Ezekiel to, to have a look and he sees dead bones in, in this valley, full. it's full of dead bones and they're all dried up, okay? And he says, then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord." You see, there's a promise here to his own people. Even though they may have been slaughtered, even though they may have been uh, uh, destroyed almost, God's going to resurrect them and he's going to bring them back into his land. And they're going to say, yes, you did keep your promise. You did perform that. And so we find the reason we find Revelation is filled with um, references to Jews and to, and, to the, and to Israel is because we are now living in the, the time of the Gentiles and God is dealing with the church. But when the final Gentile has come in, and I think you're all Gentiles here. I don't know if there are any Jews. Okay. Um, when the final Gentile comes in, God then saves Israel. So something then changes. Something flips. Go to Romans chapter 11 with me, verse 25. Romans 11, verse 25. Now, the Apostle Paul is describing to the Romans um, the order of things, essentially. Okay, and you can, do, you can do a whole lot more reading in this particular passage, uh, in this chapter of Romans, because it explains a whole lot. But in verse 25 to 27 of Romans 11, it says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, lest you become big-headed. Okay, because look at us, we believe in Jesus, but the but the Jews don't. Okay, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's the mystery he's talking about. That that Israel is experiencing a blindness until the fullness of the very last Gentile come in. Verse twenty six says, and so all Israel shall be saved, as is written, they shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Who's he speaking about there? The Jews. Their sins. Now, he's speaking to his brethren here, but he's saying, don't be foolish. Don't be big-headed. Don't be proud and arrogant because the Jews have rejected their saviour. Now, look, you know, we've now got all the blessings and they've been been rejected by God. He says, don't be big-headed. Don't be wise in your own conceits. He says, because they've gone through a period now of blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then God's going to save his people completely. And that's why Daniel 12.2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They're all going to be saved, but all believing Israel will be saved. And they that will be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. wondered, did the Old Testament teach about the resurrection from the dead? You know, we know the resurrection of the dead because Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, right? So we know that as part of that thing. And so that gives us hope. But was the resurrection of the dead taught in the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament saints understand about the resurrection of the body? You might wonder whether that's true or not. Because there are some who only believe in some sort of a spiritual thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you die and then you go to heaven. And we exist then forever and ever as some sort of spirit beings, right? Most religions in the world have that type of thing. So most religions in the world believe that we have a spiritual aspect to us which continues on after we physically die. But most of them don't believe in a physical resurrection. They have like a spiritual... Once you die, you're disconnected from your physical body and your spirit then goes and does something else, okay? Okay. But what does the Old Testament say about that? Does it teach that we just exist as spirit beings after we die? Well, turn to Job chapter 19. I'm going to give you a few examples of that because I'm going to show you that the resurrection from the dead is a very, very Christian thing that's unique to this God of the Bible. He's going to resurrect our physical bodies, which is very distinct from almost every other religion out there, which doesn't believe it, but look at what Job believes. Job nineteen twenty-five, and he says there. Job says, "For I know that my redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth." Who's Job's deliverer? Who's Job's, Job's redeemer? that's the savior Jesus Christ he was hoping and waiting for that savior you remember god promised it god promised it to adam and eve he's promised a redeemer from the from the garden and so job knows there's a redeemer coming and he says i know my redeemer liveth and that he shall that he my redeemer shall stand at the latter day upon the earth and though after my skin worms destroy this body Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What was Job's hope? That even though he may was, was going to be dead and buried and the, eaten by worms, he said, you know, there's going to come a day when I'm going to get to see my Savior face to face, and I'm going to see him in my flesh with mine own eyes, and I'm going to stand on my two feet again. That's what the Old Testament teaches. And that's why Daniel 12.2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Psalm 1715 says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And turn with me now to John chapter 5, verse 28, because Jesus tells us very clearly about the resurrection from the dead. John 5, 28. So Jesus tells those who are listening to him, he says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You see, there's a resurrection for everyone. Everyone gets resurrected, good and bad. Everyone gets a new body. The question is where that body is then going to go. And Jesus says that he is going to literally call people up out of the grave. So what a glorious hope we have. That we are not going to be disembodied spirits for the rest of eternity. You see, God made us the way we are. He made us to have a body, a soul and a spirit. He made us different to the angels. And when we die, and the Bible says, and this is the beautiful thing about being a believer, the Bible says to be absent from the body, so when I'm disconnected from my body, is to be present with the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing, right? Just immediately when we pass away, if this body dies, we immediately go to be with the Lord. That's in heaven, right? That's where he is. But that's not our our final place. That's not our final state. God is going to give us new bodies, because we weren't created angels, we were created people. And people are meant to have bodies. We were, not, we were not created to be disembodied spirits or souls. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 confirms this again for us. If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 20, sorry, verse chapter 3 verse 20 and 21. The difference is now that the bodies that God's going to give us are not like these. They're going to be very, very different bodies. In fact, it's impossible for us to even imagine what they're going to be like because this body that I have is susceptible to COVID. It gets sick. I get sore knees. I get headaches. I get a sore back. I can All different things can go wrong with people because we live in a fallen world, the Bible says. But somehow God's going to give us bodies, new ones, that are not susceptible to all this stuff that we experience now. And it's hard for me to even imagine that. But it says in Philippians 3.20, it says, For our conversation is in heaven. Our life really is in heaven. Now, it's not on the earth. It's in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's coming from. And look at the verse 21. Who shall change our vile body. (laughs) What do they think about their bodies? Paul didn't think very much of his body. I mean, Paul's body, if you think about Paul's body, that he'd been whipped and stoned and everything... Paul would have had a few pains, all right? If you've ever been whipped, none of you have been whipped. None of us have ever been stoned. But when you go through that type of, when your body experiences that type of trauma, it doesn't recover fully. The scars would continue to weep. The the broken bones and all the, the damage he took would continue to cause pain for him. And so he says, who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So the idea that God is going to change this body to something that's going to be like his body, for me, is outside of my comprehension. I can't understand it. I I can't quite get my head around that whole thing that we would somehow be radically different from how we are now and that my normal mind can perceive is seems to be a far-fetched concept i can't imagine a body that doesn't die i can't imagine a body that doesn't get sick i can't imagine a body that doesn't have that has a full head of hair i can sort of imagine it because it wasn't that long ago let me just think about it for a moment but it seems to be a far-fetched concept that those of us who live in these mortal bodies that are and the older you get the more you understand what I'm talking about right um can some might one day be lying in the grave and decaying and rotting in a in a a coffin and that somehow God's going to Call me, and then give me a whole new body. And that body is going to be like Jesus' body. You know how when Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible says that he all of a sudden magically appeared. One minute he's there, the next minute he's not, walking through walls, doing whatever. And he can still eat, because remember he ate with them as well. So he still he can still eat, but he's somehow got this ability to do amazing things. And isn't it the blessing that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, he could have actually shed his body, but he didn't, And he kept the nail prints in his hands and his feet and on the side. He allowed those things to become a permanent part of his body. Yet he's glorified. The Bible says that we are going to be like him one day. And I can't understand it. I can't quite comprehend that. But I trust God with that. That's all I have to do. You see, when the Apostle Paul started speaking about the resurrection of the dead to the Athenians... It says in, in Acts 17.32, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They said, what are you, crazy? We've seen people hacked to death, you know, who've been torn limb from limb, who have been eaten by sharks, who have, you know, who have been buried and who knows where they are now, who, who are maybe dust, who maybe there's no difference between them and the worms that are going around, you know, under the earth. How can there be a resurrection of the dead? Yet that's what the God of the Bible says he's going to do. And when it comes to what we believe, it doesn't depend on what makes perfect sense for us. It doesn't have to. I don't have to fully understand how God's going to give me a new body. don't have to understand it. It doesn't have make, to make perfect sense to me because this mind can't even comprehend half the stuff that God's done for me. I can't fully comprehend how he allowed his son to pay for my sins. I can't fully comprehend how he rose again from the third day. I can't comprehend how the, the blood that he shed has fully covered me and, and cleansed me of all my sin and, and, and caused me to be forgiven and justified before God. How do I understand that? I simply believe it by faith because he said he did it. It doesn't have to make perfect sense for us. Nor does it have to fit within the confines of what we regard as normal in this world. What it does and should depend on is the power of Christ. And that's what he says in Philippians. He says he's going to give us a new body according to the working whereby he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. Why? Because he is God in the flesh, because he is all powerful. And if he promises something, he's going to do it. It's according to his power that I have my faith, not according to my understanding and knowledge and grasp of all things wonderful. That's what the scriptures mean when the Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. There are plenty of things that I don't see in this world. But God says will come to pass. And that's where our faith rests. For what we see now will be a little resemblance to what we will be. And that my brothers and sisters, is guaranteed by his irresistible power. There is nothing that can withstand him. If anything Daniel teaches us is that regardless of what games the devil plays, what things people try and do, there is no one who can resist his will. If he says he's going to do something, there is no one that can stop him. So if he says he's going to give us new bodies and those bodies are going to be like the body of his own son, and we're going to live forever in those bodies, and they're not going to be like the same as we are now, then I'm going to believe him for it. So then in verse 4, go to verse 4 in Daniel. Daniel 12. So now he tells Daniel, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. The revelations that Daniel had received from the Lord through the many years of his life had now come to an end. Daniel was over 80 years of age, and from the time that he was about 13, when he was taken captive into Babylon, he remained faithful to God. And we see through that whole time, almost 70 years, God had given him information He had seen visions. God had given him prophecies. God had told him, record these things down. And now we find that after many, many years of faithfulness, of recording those words, that the book was now complete. The revelations were now finished. And this book that we have in our hands is a living testimony of his faithfulness, is a living testimony that, he lived a life that followed what God had told him to do. He did exactly what God told him, and we have the evidence of that in our hands today. This book, which will be a living testimony of the future of God's people, even unto the end. And Daniel recorded faithfully those things. And now the, the angel said, seal up the book. Close it up. It's finished now. And there are going to be many people who don't understand it who, to whom the words in the book will make no sense. But there are going to be some who actually see and understand what it says. And look at the beautiful thing about the way it says the end of the world is going to be. It says, and we are told here, many, and even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. What an amazing prophecy about the end times of the world. If we were to look at our time the world we live in today, through some sort of a microscope and compare it to all the thousands of years that have come before, there are probably two things that will stand out enormously to someone if you looked at it just the face value. The first thing is that knowledge has increased exponentially. Knowledge. Since the early 1900s, knowledge has increased beyond what we can understand, we can't even keep up with the knowledge that's coming out every day, okay? Every time they upgrade your phone, we can't even keep up with the upgrades because every time they come out with a new idea, they're implementing it and selling it and doing it. And, and people in our generation have never, in previous generations, never experienced this before. They never experienced all the changes that we experience in our lives. It's not normal. Yet we live in a time when knowledge is increased and increasing exponentially. When compared to the slow and gradual increase of, of information and knowledge for thousands of years, we that's the, it grew like this, knowledge, right? Literally like that, very, very slow. You know what our knowledge is growing like now? Like this. With every passing year, more and more knowledge is being extracted, created, understood, and so that goes hand-in-hand hand with the increase in the world's population. And that increase of the world's population and all the knowledge that we're gaining and the wealth that, that's being generated around the world means that people are travelling to and fro around the earth like never before. Now, in no other time in history, just, go, just let's just take 100 years away from the calendar, right? From the 5,000 years, essentially, of civilization, Right? Take last hundred years. Which other civilization, which other time in history have people been able to fly to different countries in a few hours? Travel by car wherever you want for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. You can travel by bike. You can travel by electric car, by by combustion engine, by trains. by And now you can even take a trip into space if you want. But before then, before... 1900s when the car was invented essentially in the late 1800s so from the 1900s before that you had how many choices take a horse a donkey foot what else did you have you had a train how long how long have trains been around for 1700. 1700 so they're about they've been about 300 years right so you could take a train right But the amount of people travelling were minuscule compared to what happens Now, I mean, people today, you think this is normal for us, right? So we think of holiday time, where are we going to go, right? Normally, don't we? I've got to get out of this place. I've got to get out of Melbourne, right? So everyone's planning trips, going overseas and stuff like that. That's not normal. Throughout all of history, that's never been normal to go away to a different country or even a different city for... For a, a trip just for a couple of weeks, when you were traveling uh, interstate, you'd be that'd be a very serious thing you'd do. Okay, you'd be a lot of planning involved with that. But today we travel hundreds of kilometers every day, and when you look at this scripture, it says, "Many shall run to and fro." Now, what more apt description is there of this world that people are running to and fro? Everyone's running everywhere. There's no stopping them. And so these these scriptures are so are so beautifully written and concise that they tell us about what the time of the end is going to be, and the time of the end is going to be where people are running around to and fro, and knowledge is going to be increased. Do we live in those times? We are living in those times already. So there's there's no reason, and there's no there's no. Uh, anything else that has to be fulfilled in this particular point before Christ comes and takes us home. Let's let's look at verse 5. Let's continue as we wrap it up. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, <clears throat> the one on this side of the bank of the river and the, and the other on the, that side of the bank of the river. And one, uh, one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen that was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and forever that it shall be for a time and times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So With one angel on one side of the river and one angel on the other side of the river and and Gabriel standing on the water in the actual river, on the river and he puts up his hands to God and and he he swears by Almighty God that what he's about to say is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And he swears to God and he says that it's going to happen for a time and times and a half. And he says that It will be during a time when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. That's the Antichrist we've looked at in detail over the past weeks when he's going to come and try and destroy the people of God and all those who are believers in Christ on top of the Jews themselves. And Daniel says, I don't quite understand. What do you mean a time and times and a half? And he says in verse 8, and I heard but I understood not. And then said uh, I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the, the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that is that maketh death, desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. So once again, he gives them the same thing. Now he told it to him in times and time and half a time. Daniel, understand what that means? Let me tell you. One thousand two hundred and ninety days. How's that for you? I'll tell you exactly how many days is going to come from the time the Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple, which isn't built yet. still going to be built. Okay. When he sets that statue up in there that somehow moves, I don't know what happens to it, but the people of the world are called to worship him and that statue, the Bible says, from that time to the end will be 1,290 days. To the end, to the time that they're rescued. To the time when Jesus returns to this earth. Okay? <clears throat> and Jesus spoke about this. And most people will not understand it, but he said there'll be some who understand the majority will not understand, and he's going to ta- and he tells them. And the beautiful thing about this is that if you are a believer during those days, and you have this Bible in your hand with the Book of Daniel in it, and you and you see the abomination of desolation set up, you know exactly when Jesus returns. And all I got to do is hold out for one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Jesus himself said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let, it, let him understand. You know who's going to understand? The people that are watching it at that time, the people who are going to see it. They are going to know exactly what these words mean and they're going to read these things and they're going to say, okay, and Jesus says, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that I was child unto them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. And so... The people who have this book in their hands in those days when they see that abomination set up in that temple are going to understand. But then he told something else. And verse 12 says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and 30 days. Hang on a sec. You've had another 45 days on top of it now. What are 45 days for? Why do I have to wait 45 days more, another month and a half for those things. <clears throat> Not only is there time for all the kingdoms of the world to be defeated and subdued by Christ when he returns. But there's also time for those who are in exile, those who are in hiding, those who have been uh, who have been locked up in prisons during this time, are going to be released and are going to have a chance to get back home. 45 days provides time for the judgment of the nations to occur. Christ will sit on his throne and the nations will be judged. There will be a time when Jesus will walk into Jerusalem or ride into Jerusalem victorious and he'll be received by all the people there as the Messiah and the King. And he will sit in the temple of God as God and he will be God and he will, he will judge his people and he will judge the nations of this earth and he will inaugurate a thousand years. So we have another 45 days for those things to occur. And finally, verse 13, once again, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, but go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and shall stand in thy lot at the end of the days. As I've said, remember Daniel was 80 years of age, he more, he was older than 80 years of age and Gabriel told him all things that were going to come to pass. He'd completed all the revelations that he was to give Daniel, but Daniel wouldn't be alive to see them all. He was going to pass away before that end and he's told pretty much, keep on going your way. Go away. Go and rest now. You've done your job. Go and do what what we've called you to do. You've been faithful all of your life. Now your work is complete. You've recorded the words, seal the book, close it up and continue on your way until this book is complete and the revelations that it contains are fulfilled. You're going to rest from your labours, but you're also going to rest in the earth, which means that Daniel was going to die before these things came to pass. But at the time of the chosen end, the time of the end when God chose these times, that he would stand again on his own two feet in his lot. You see, if I was to say, what's your lot? What I'm saying is what your destiny is going to be. And when you speak of a lot, I mean, when I bought my house, I bought lot number 455 or whatever it was in this particular estate. But sometimes the word lot can be used as someone's lot in life or someone's lot, which is a destination, which is is something that, that the future will bring. Or lot could also be a parcel of land. Now Daniel was told, you're going to rest, but you're going to stand in your lot at the end. Because God is faithful. And Daniel's hope was that one day he would stand on his own two feet in the inheritance God would give him. And God, and Daniel was not, it will not be disappointed. so we be finally to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Daniel, knowing Daniel, believed perfectly what the angel had told him, that he would rest, but that in the end he would stand again in his own lot, the inheritance that God would give him, <clears throat> and that he would once again see his Saviour face to face. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing. Towards the end of his life, he tells a young pastor called Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.6, he says, For I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. The book of Daniel ends with a certain hope. It ends with a great hope, a hope that we should all have, which Daniel had, which that even though he may die and his flesh might be corrupted, he knows that one he knew that one day, and he still knows that he will stand on his own two feet in the end. And God will bring him to his inheritance. God will bless him. And so the book of Daniel ends with a great hope, a certain hope, a hope that is based on the power, the promises, and the love of God. A a hope that's based on his faithfulness. Daniel had this hope. The apostle Paul had this hope that at the end of his life, and he was beheaded for what he believed in, he knew that there was a crown of righteousness waiting for him. Now let me ask you this morning. Do you have this hope? Do you have the hope of Daniel? Do you have the hope of the Apostle Paul that despite whatever happens to you in this world, you will see your Savior face to face one day? That despite whatever we may encounter in our lives, that God is always true to his promises and he never, ever goes back on them. If you have that hope within you today, then God bless you. Hold on to that hope. Because that hope is not a fleeting hope. It's not a hope based on our power or our abilities. It's a hope based on God. And God cannot lie. And you will be satisfied. You will never be disappointed. If you have Christ in your life this morning, you have hope because of him. But if you don't have Christ in your life this morning, if you are not saved this morning, if you have not repented of your sins and seen yourself as a sinner destined for hell, worthy of hell, on their way to hell, regardless of how hard you may try, the Bible says that all your righteousness and my righteousness is as filthy rags before God because everything we do is tainted. Everything we do is corrupted. And the Bible says, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't outweigh that balance of all your guilt before God, but God made a way. God sent his son to pay for all of those sins so that we might be cleansed and justified in his sight. And if you haven't received that justification, if you haven't been cleansed by the blood of Christ, if you don't know what that means, if you haven't received eternal life as a gift and you're still trying to work for it, then you haven't received it at all. You're trying to work for it and you'll never receive it. And if you haven't received it, or if you don't know if you've received it this morning, then please don't leave these doors without knowing where you're going. Without having the hope of Daniel and the Apostle Paul and all the New Testament saints and all the Old Testament saints, because there's going to come a day when we all have to give an account. But the beautiful thing is if you have Christ, he's given the account on your part. He's paid for it all. So turn to Christ today. And remember, those of you who are believers, keep on trusting. Things may not look, you may not make make sense of everything in life, but he will make perfect sense one day when he opens up our minds and gives us these new bodies and a new mind as well. God bless you. Thank you.